Hi, Nat Doik here. This is the third and final part of the Potten Poisoner story. If you haven't listened to part one or two yet, I'd recommend you go back and start there. I'll still be here waiting when you're ready. Also, just a heads up that although this is about a case that is 180 years old, it covers an infant death, murder and domestic violence and abuse. I'm letting you know so that you can decide when and how you listen. Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny. All that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade, or the pot and poisoner, curious social history, or the great swan mystery of 1935, we'll follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. Haymaking. It's July 1842 and George Waldock is resting after a long day haymaking alongside the whole village, it seemed. It really is a case of making hay while the sun shines. They need the hay to feed the livestock throughout the winter. The other occupants of George's home are either fast asleep upstairs or easing their aching muscles and bellies with beer and a hearty supper in the local pubs of Cocaine Hatley or Wrestlingworth. But George chose to stay at home this evening because Sarah Daisley is visiting to mend his shirts. George tells himself he's not the settling down type. He's currently courting Mary Carver, but he thinks it will be just a dalliance, though Mary is sweet on him. He's also caught the eye of little Mercy Meeks. She may be young, but she's not shy and she is very pretty. But now watching Sarah sitting by the open window for the last of the light her head bent over her sewing, the setting sun aglow through her fiery auburn hair. He wonders if married life is not such a bad thing after all. So he asks Sarah, How are you finding married life then? She looks up at George, her hazel eyes gleaming in the dying light and replies in that slightly dramatic way of hers that the village women mock her for behind her back. Very well. I'm glad I have a good husband. But he is always ailing and will soon be in the churchyard, I fear. And I shall be very happy to follow him there. Well, 
That's how George recalls the conversation in March 1843 in front of the coroner and jury at the inquest into Sarah's second husband William Daisley's death. Fast forward to July the same year and in front of a judge and jury at William Daisley's murder trial, he remembers it like this. How are you finding married life then? Very well. I have a good husband. But I wish he was dead. He will soon be in the churchyard and I shall be happy to follow him there. Some changes in recollection can be forgiven over the passage of time and there are many when you compare the inquest reports to those of the murder trial. But when a recollection changes from something that sounds reasonable and plausible to something far more fantastic, you have to ask yourself why? Which version is the truth? What could have motivated George to lie either at the inquest or the trial and untangling it all becomes incredibly tricky? If George's first statement at the inquest was a lie, Did he lie to play down the incriminating statement that Sarah wanted her husband dead out of a vestige of loyalty or love for her? He's only called off the marriage some weeks before. Equally, could he be lying at the trial in July because over the intervening months, he's become certain that she did poison both her husbands and her child. This recollection fits with his new opinion of her. Also, could his loyalties have changed? Is it now in his interests to have Sarah convicted? His evidence neatly condemns her. Personally, I think it is far more likely that his statement in July is the false one, that he shaped his evidence to match the crime she is accused of rather than just recalling their conversation. What we'll try to do during this final episode of The Pot and Poisoner is pick a course through all the evidence, whether it is clear or contradictory, uncertain or categorical, and try to decide what really happened to William Daisley in 1842. Welcome to this final episode of The Pot and Poisoner from Weird in the Wade. Previously, we heard about Sarah Daisley's life and how she responded to accusations of murder. We looked at how the press treated her, why arsenic poisonings were such an issue for the Victorians and how their attitudes to women and violence in the home affected this case. We also followed the inquests into Sarah Daisley's first husband and child. In this episode, I'm going to take you through month by month what we know happened in 1842 and 3 in the run-up to and aftermath of Sarah's second husband, William Daisley's death. I'll let you know where the evidence is different between the inquest and the trial. When I don't point out any changes, you can assume that the evidence was corroborated or not challenged in any way. I think this is the best way to bring to life some very twisty testimony and understand the complexities of the case, but it also shines a light on where we have huge holes in the timeline and the evidence. We'll also look at Sarah's execution and what happened to many of the various people you have met through the last three episodes. And finally, I have a new ghost story associated with Sarah to tell you. I'm Nat Doig. And I hope you enjoy this final episode of The Pot and Poisoner. Harvest August was another busy month of harvesting. Many who would not normally work in the fields left their jobs or school and joined the bringing in of the crops. It was a time of extreme hard work, but also freedom. 
to be in the fields with your friends gossiping and singing and generally trying to make the back-breaking work go faster. It was also a traditional time of courting, of the beginning or the end of love affairs. George and Mary Carver are now seeing more of each other. Though when Mary is cross-examined about this relationship at William's murder trial, she plays it down. Yeah, I was sweet on George, but I did not expect marriage. This is quite the admission for middle-class Victorian Britain to read and possibly was for some of the more traditional and religious working-class folk. Mary Carver is admitting that she entered into a dalliance with George without expecting the respectability of marriage as her reward. She paints herself as a loose woman, and why is she prepared to do this? Because she does not want to be portrayed as the jilted lover, jaded with jealousy, who would spread gossip and lies about her rival, Sarah. During August... William Daisley is also out bringing in the harvest, but he is not feeling quite himself. He complains of being unwell, and numerous people at the inquest and the trial say he was poorly. William Daisley was not a well man from harvest time until his death. The nature of his illness is never specified, just that he was ailing. Sarah is not working in the fields, at least for some of the time, though I get the impression that she was not the type of woman who would have worked labouring in the fields if she could help it. As well as her sewing services, she is also working for the Gurries in their local shop. Ebenezer Gurry and his wife, also a Sarah, run a baker's and general stores in Wrestlingworth. Mrs Gurry also sees herself as a local healing woman, she stocks all kinds of pills, powders and potions bought in from the druggists in nearby towns like Biggleswade. She also makes up remedies herself and will visit the sick, providing a cheaper alternative to the local doctors, including remedies the medical men do not approve of, things like leeches. Sarah Daisley mainly runs errands for Mrs Gurry, but also on occasions serves in the shop. The newspapers make much of how Sarah learnt about poisons and potions in the back room of the Gurry's general store, but Mrs Gurry denies this. Her evidence is clear. Sarah ran errands and served in the shop. She was not some apprentice druggist or apothecary. One of these errands was to Sarah's hometown of Potton to buy ingredients from a chemist there. A young shop boy named Robert Norman remembers a conversation between his boss, John Burnham, and Sarah like this. Good morning, Sarah. Yeah, yeah, it's dusty out there. It's the demolition of that old bakehouse. Dust everywhere. Can I help? Good morning, Mr Burnham. Oh, hello, Robert. I didn't see you there. Give my regards to your parents. Thank you, ma'am. Mr Burnham, I've got a list here for Mrs Gary, and it's as usual, except I also need half an ounce of arsenic powder. Right you are. Oh, arsenic. What's that going to be used for, then? Well, killing rats, of course. Right you are. Look here, I'll write POISON in capitals, very clear-like, so no one can be mistaken for what it is. Look, here on the bottle. We do not know if the poison was for Sarah's own use or for Mrs Gurry's. And as you'll find out later, Mr Burnham believes that this all took place much later in the year, on the first day of William's illness. I'm inclined to believe little Robert's timings, though, because he pins it to the demolition of the bakehouse, an actual thing that happened. But as both agree, the arsenic was bought 
I believe we must admit that Sarah did buy arsenic from a chemist, either for herself or for Mrs Gurry. Michaelmas Michaelmas falls at the end of September and in the 19th century it was an important date. It was the time of year that farm labourers renewed their hiring contracts or found new ones. Fairs were held around the country when this hiring process took place. It was a good chance to let off steam after the harvest, catch up with friends and family, and there would be festivities and games centred around the fair. In 1842, Sarah Daisley went to the Michaelmas Fair in Potton by herself. We have no explanation for why William did not join her. All we know is that he forbade her to go and she went anyway. Possibly this illness that had affected him since the harvest time kept him at home. The day after the Michaelmas Fair, an argument between the couple erupted. It was so heated that passers-by remembered hearing the argument coming from the Daisley's home, whilst on the street. A neighbour of the Daisley's, John Hanley, who worked as a thatcher, gave testimony at the inquest that the couple had quarrelled, eventually taking the argument outside their house, that blows were struck and both were physical towards each other. At the trial, John goes further and says that Sarah, in a bid to escape William, sought refuge in his home, which he gave gladly. But eventually William became so enraged that he marched into John Hanley's house and dragged Sarah outside and hit her. It was after this that the injured Sarah was heard to say, I don't care a damn for such a man as you. I'll be a match for you someday. Blast you! Sadly, as we discovered in the last episode, this is not the first time Sarah had faced violence from a spouse, yet the newspapers of the time seem more outraged by her language for saying damn and blast than they are for the violence that she has been subjected to. This appears to be a turning point in Sarah's life. It is reported that she said from this day, I never took him his dinner afterwards and never fetched him his beer for supper nor wouldn't afterwards if he had lived for 20 years. Withholding these wifely duties was her act of revenge, she claims, not poisoning him. October, the week of illness, pills, pigs and powders. Saturday. On Saturday the 22nd of October 1843, we're back in that chemist shop in Potton, run by Mr Burnham. He has a record of Sarah Daisley coming in with a shopping list from Mrs Gurry. She bought treacle, syrup of rhubarb and a pound of black lead. He seems to have meticulous records for all he sold, yet although he claims it was this day that Sarah bought arsenic, he has no record for it, which is why I'm inclined to believe little Robert's account that the arsenic was bought much earlier in the summer. When Sarah returns home with the goods for Mrs Gurry, she discovers that William is now quite ill, poorly enough for his parents to be with him. It is in the afternoon that Sarah discovers that a doctor is passing through the village and she rushes out into the street to waylay him and beg him to come see her husband too. Dr Sandal was originally from Chester, but settled in Potton sometime after 1841. He has a small family at this stage and is described as a general practitioner serving Potton and its surrounding villages. Sandal reports that William was sick with an irritation of the bowels, what we'd probably call today a sickness bug. He prescribes a powder of carbonate of soda and tartaric acid, basically a version of Alka-Seltzer or other hangover or sickness medicines that can be bought to this day over the counter. 
He sends the medicine with a messenger once he is home. Tuesday. Dr Sandal visits the Daisley house to check up on his patient. William is doing a little better and so again Dr Sandal sends a powder which is of a yellow colour and this time made up of rhubarb and ginger, a classic combination to prevent sickness. Living in the house with William and Sarah is little Anne Mead. She is 13 or 14 at this time and sister of Sarah's first husband, Simeon. Anne is there to help about the house and may well have been living with them since 1840 when little Jonah was still alive. Anne tells the inquest that on the Tuesday morning she witnessed Sarah making up three pills in the kitchen. She describes them as large and dark and that Sarah wrapped them in newspaper and hid them in her skirts. But if we fast forward to the murder trial, Anne is no longer certain if this happened on Tuesday or the Wednesday morning. Similarly, at the inquest, Mary Carver tells a tale of visiting Potton with Sarah to see Dr Sandal, but at the trial she says it was the Wednesday. And because other witnesses tie this trip to Potton to the Wednesday, I'll give Mary the benefit of the doubt that she simply misremembered at the inquest or that the newspaper reports just got it wrong. Wednesday. Maybe it was this morning that little Anne Mead saw Sarah make up the pills. Dr Sandal visits once more and is happy with his patient's progress. He asks Sarah to come and collect a stomach mixture as a tonic from Potton later that day. Sarah certainly travelled to Potton to collect this mixture from Dr Sandal. He has the record in his books. But other witnesses, including Mary Carver, say that Sandal also sold her some pills, opiate pills, called resting pills. Sarah herself told Fanny Simmons and Mary Ann Nibbs, the women who chaperoned her on her last night of freedom, that Sandal refused to sell her any resting pills. And Sandal seems to want to agree with this. At the trial, he is uncertain if he sold resting pills or not. He has checked his records and the sale is not in his daybook. But he concedes that he could have sold Sarah the pills. He says that by Wednesday morning, William was in a state in which resting pills may have helped him. It's confusing, to say the least. Now we must turn to the evidence of Mary Carver. Although she changes the day that this happens, she does not change what she says happened. She claims that on the way home from Potton, Sarah took out the pills given to her by Dr Sandal, the ones he has no record or recollection of selling to her, and chucked them in a ditch. Sarah then produced three larger pills, which she replaced in the pillbox. She claimed that these pills were from Mrs Gurry and would do a better job than those prescribed by Dr Sandal. I'm not sure what the deal is with these resting pills, why Mary Carver is so insistent that Sarah was given them and then threw them away. Is she just wanting to incriminate Sarah? Surely she could do that without an elaborate story about Dr Sandal's medication, especially as Mrs Gurry confirms that she did give Sarah three antibilious pills at the trial, and she goes further and says that these pills were from a batch she had bought from Barker's of Biggleswade to sell in her shop. Now, Barker was a druggist based on the high street in Biggleswade. He sold all kinds of pills and potions and advertised in local newspapers about some of the more discreet medications 
that he sold, including treatments for syphilis that included mercury and arsenic as ingredients. I've found advertisements for wonder cures of this sort from him in the 1830s right the way through to the 1850s. Often purporting to be from exotic locations, Dr. So-and-so's Austrian cure, for example. Who knows what were in Barker's antibilious pills or where he got them from. Maybe they were just more carbonate of soda or ginger. But in his shop, he clearly stocked medications that included poisonous ingredients. Mrs. Garish says that she does not use arsenic in her medicines, but what of the ones she bought in? Sadly, we don't hear whether the Barkers of Biggleswade were ever searched, or if the remainder of Mrs. Gurry's batch of Barker's pills were ever tested. She simply says she handed them to the coroner at the first inquest back in March and never saw or heard about them again. Back to Wednesday, 26th of October. Sarah returns home with three pills. We never learn for sure whether they were Dr Sandal's pills, Mrs Gurry's or the ones Anne Mead says Sarah made up that morning. The only clue we have is that when Mrs Gurry confirms that she gave Sarah three pills, Sarah becomes emotional. But we don't know why. Is it relief or anguish? But whoever supplied the pills, there were three of them and William refused to take a single one. Sarah tried, but he is described by more than one witness as being like a child in refusing to take medicines. Sarah gave up and went out on further errands. Anne Mead decided that she would try to coax William to take one. She explained it like this. Well, if he was going to behave like a child, I would treat him like a child. I took one of the pills right in front of him saying, See, I take the medicine, William. You can take it too. And he did. He took a pill from me. At the inquest, she says he took all of his medicine. At the trial, Anne says he took one pill, leaving a spare. Either way, within an hour, poor Anne Mead is sick with a raging headache and vomiting. When Sarah returns home and asks what is wrong, she scolds Anne for taking medicine not meant for her. Anne is so distraught and poorly, she leaves the house for her uncle and aunts. So she was not so incapacitated that she could not walk. Did little Anne take a resting pill of opium, which made her feel so unwell? Or was it a pill from Mrs Gurry's meant for a grown man who was suffering from sickness? Or was it arsenic made up by Sarah? We honestly don't know. One other curious thing happens that night, and a warning here, this gets a bit gross. William is sick again, though not seriously, but a bucket of vomit is produced and needs to be discarded. William's mum, Elizabeth, empties it into the front yard and thinks no more of it until the next morning. Thursday. Elizabeth finds the body of a pig in the front yard, swollen up like a bladder and dead. It is assumed by all that the pig died by eating William's vomit. The pig, it turns out, belonged to the Gurries, who also own the house that the Daisleys rent. When Sarah learns of the pig's demise, she advises Elizabeth in future to discard of any vomit in the backyard away from the pigs. Elizabeth doesn't mention the dead pig to anyone until the trial, 
It's not raised at the inquest and she didn't raise it at the time to Dr. Sandor. She admits under cross-examination that she just assumed that whatever illness William had could be transferred between him and the pig. It was far more common then for people to live closely with animals like pigs and many diseases were passed between both. Although Sarah's instructions could be interpreted as her having knowledge about poison, they could also be just as Elizabeth initially feared that whatever ailed William was contagious and could be passed on to others, including pigs. Dr Sandor visits again on the Thursday. He is still happy with his patient's progress, but not, it seems, that William now has leeches on his neck and the gurries are fussing over him. William's mum has also put a poultice on his stomach. And here's a thing. No one mentions the leeches dying. Yet, if they'd fed on William's blood and he had taken arsenic the day before, it would have surely killed the leeches too. I think Dr Sandal includes this detail to demonstrate just that. Saturday. By Saturday, all agree that William is doing much better. He has been out of bed and is described as cheerful. Dr Sandal visits and is happy with the progress being made. He invites Sarah to come to Potton and collect some more medication. It is again the powder of rhubarb and ginger, which Sandal insists is yellow in colour. Sarah travels to Potton and collects the powder. They are both so impressed by William's recovery that Sarah asks Sandal to make up the bill for early next week and he agrees. Saturday evening, 8pm. William's parents have gone home, relieved that their son will be alright, but his two brothers, 19-year-old John and 16-year-old Gilbert, remain. After Anne Mead's departure, Mary Bull has joined the house to help out, so she is also there as are both the Gurries and Sarah. It appears that they are in and out of the sick room that evening, which is Sarah and William's bedroom. Sarah says she has the final powder from Dr Sandal to give William. Mary Bull remembers her saying, Dr Sandal says he must take this powder or he won't get better. At the inquest, John remembers Sarah saying it like this. Dr Sandal says this powder may make him feel better, but it could make him feel worse. 16-year-old Gilbert remembers it like this. Dr Sandal said, if the powder operated right, then he would soon be better, and if wrong, he would soon be dead. Welcome to Saturday night where no one agrees on anything. John and Gilbert both claim that they see Sarah make up a mixture from a white powder in a teacup with some warm water from a teapot. They claim this at the inquest and it goes unchallenged because there is no defence to cross-examine. Fast forward to the murder trial and Mary Bull says, The brothers were not in the room when the powder was put in the teacup, nor made up. I was not in the room when it was made up, and nor were they. I was sent from the room. According to Mary, they all entered the room afterwards and by that point there was a teacup which had diluted powder in it. No one could say for certain where the powder had come from or who put it in the teacup, but Sarah was helping William to drink it. The Daisley brothers, however, say that they saw Sarah take the white powder from a packet in her bosom and that there was also powder spilled on a table and that table was right next to where they were standing. Mary denies all this too. 
They weren't in the room to see where the powder came from, and when they did enter the room, she says the table was on the other side of the bed. The boys were not standing where they say they were. Mary and the brothers are in agreement, though, that Sarah had a powder. Once diluted in water, it was given to William. They all agree that the Gurries were in the room. Yet, maddeningly, the newspapers don't report what the Gurries have to say about this powder. It is so frustrating. By 9.15, William is very sick again and his parents are sent for. He dies in the early hours of Sunday with his parents, brothers, Gurries and Sarah at his side. Monday. Dr Sandal learns of William's death and is astonished. He rushes over to Wrestlingworth, not believing it's true. There he finds Sarah, quote, making much fuss and crying, whilst Elizabeth Daisley is angry with him, he feels. Sarah, however, must have calmed herself enough to tell him that she is satisfied with everything he did for William and that he should not blame himself. He suggests that they could open up the body to try and find out what has caused this turn of events. Both women refuse. He says at the trial that up until Saturday, William's illness had taken what he saw as a natural course. William was very sick, he gradually got better through the week and was well on the mend. He even goes as far to say that he does not believe William was poisoned earlier in the week, only on the Saturday. But even today, it's notoriously tricky to work out when poison has been administered. He could have been given a lower dose earlier in the week. And surely Sandal would prefer to believe that rather than be known as the doctor who treated a poison victim for over a week without even realising what was going on. But then I think of those leeches and how deadly arsenic is. Remember, it kills even the bacteria that feed on decomposing flesh. Surely there was no arsenic in William when those leeches were feeding on his body. But on that Monday, Sandal gives up persuading for an autopsy and leaves the family to their grief. November and early December. Winter is drawing in and William has been buried in the churchyard. George Waldock has dropped his dalliance with Mary Carver. She's not sure why at first, but he's spending more time with that widow, Daisley. What neither Sarah nor Mary Carver know is that George is also spending a lot of time with 16-year-old Mercy Meeks. She lives in the same cottage as William Daisley's brother, John, up at Cocaine for Hatley Farm, near to George's home. It's around this time in late November that Mary Carver tells someone that she thinks Sarah Daisley poisoned her husband, but her story is dismissed as gossip from a girl just jilted by George, who's always had a soft spot for that Sarah Daisley, who he's now wooing. But a rumour like this one, whoever started it, begins to spread. To have had two husbands die under strange illnesses is unfortunate. Could it really be a coincidence? Didn't somebody recently hear Sarah say that at this rate she'd have seven husbands in seven years? Or was it ten husbands in ten years? Makes you wonder. Christmas Eve. Despite the gossip, which both Sarah and George have heard, George asks Sarah to court him formally on Christmas Eve. He promises in the new year he will have the bans read in church. George is to become Sarah Daisley's third husband. 
January, the first bands are read in church. February, an early March. The second bands are read out in church, but this time to whispers. It's too much. George confronts Sarah. He demands that she give an account of herself because the rumours are growing and spreading. George says she is defiant. I did not poison anyone. You knew these rumours before you proposed. You need to make your mind up, George Waldock, and stand with me or not at all. But she does do something about the rumours. She goes to Dr Sandal and asks for a letter of good character, saying that she was nothing but a good wife to William throughout his illness. And Dr Sandal obliges. Even though he wanted to open up the body and felt the death was suspicious, it appears he did not suspect Sarah. Sarah also puts it about the village that she is happy for the body of William to be dug up. She thinks it should be done. Then they'll know for sure that she did not poison him. But it's not enough for George. A little while later, he says his team in the fields are ribbing him, saying he was in on the poisoning. He helped so he could snag himself a beautiful wife. And so... He goes to the vicar and he calls off the wedding, forbidding the reading of the final bands of marriage. Sarah, meanwhile, hears a rumour that little Mercy Meeks up at Cocaine Hatley Farm is pregnant, or as the witnesses in the trial say coyly, in the family way. And George Waldock is the father. She is furious. To her, this all now makes sense. George's sudden loss of interest in marrying her, his sudden belief in the rumours he had previously been dismissing, all of it is to get out of the marriage not because he believes she poisoned anyone, but because he wants to marry Mercy Meeks after getting her pregnant. She confronts George, and just as he denies it in court, he denies it to Sarah. He says that he doesn't know anything about this Mercy Meeks being in the family way. Yes, he knows her and he spent time with her. He admits this in court, but he's got no idea about this pregnancy. And while Sarah and George are arguing after he forbade the bans, Reverend Twists and the magistrate Francis Pym call in the coroner because unlike the villagers who were content to gossip, these officials want actual answers. And as we know, Sarah runs off to London in the company of another man Arsenic is found in William's remains, and as Mrs. Gurry, Sarah's friend, landlady and employer says about all of this, it's looking very dark for Sarah. It's looking very dark indeed. And before we look at prosecution and defence summing up the trial, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Something none of the jury or the officials at the court could possibly have known, because it was yet to happen. One year, almost exactly, after the murder trial of Sarah Daisley, George Waldock gets married. He marries Mercy Meeks, now aged just 18. I could find no record for a child born with Mercy as a mother in 1843, nor with George given as a father. But there is a fairly mysterious Waldock child baptised in Biggleswade into a large branch of the Waldock family with no mother nor father's name apparent. And what makes matters even harder is that the Biggleswade branch of the Waldocks emigrate to Australia in the mid-1840s to become early pioneers in that country. And in 1850, Mercy and George join them. 
I'll tell you more about their life in Australia later, but it means I can't look at UK census records to see if they have a child living with them at the right age to have been born in 1843. But it's fairly safe to say that those rumours about George and Mercy were probably true. The trial. At the inquest into William's death, there was no prosecution or defence as such. The jury were active and able to ask questions of witnesses beyond what the coroner would ask. We learn that they questioned Mrs Gurry very closely about the keeping of arsenic. As I'm relying on newspaper reports, I don't know what else was asked, and there's a whole wealth of evidence that they don't report on. The jury and the inquest only deliberate for a few minutes before declaring that William died of arsenic poisoning administered to him deliberately by the hand of his wife. The trial is slightly different. There is a judge, Sir Edward Alderson, and two prosecuting lawyers, Pendergrast and Gunning. Sarah is also entitled to a defence lawyer thanks to a recent change in the law. She is defended by Mr O'Malley, who is deeply unhappy at the predicament he finds himself in. He gives a grovelling and apologetic speech to the judge and jury, explaining that he has been denied the evidence he needs to build a defence. He appears to not have been able to interview Sarah, nor had access to much of the evidence the prosecution has. He claims he only agreed to the task because the judge is such a fine one, and he feels that justice can prevail if the judge makes up for his shortcomings. It's quite pitiful to read and I think was to make a wider point about the conditions defence lawyers worked in when representing clients with no means to pay them. It sounds like he was appointed only that morning or at least only a few days before the case. Saying that, it's thanks to O'Malley that some of the inconsistencies in evidence are uncovered. He also does as good a job as he can at summing up and pointing out the holes in the prosecution's case. The prosecution relies on painting Sarah as an unhappy wife who had been telling people for months that she was going to do away with her husband. The motive, they say, is that she wanted to move on to the next man, George Waldock. The means is that she had bought arsenic and so had it at her disposal, but just about every household in the country had arsenic at their disposal. They also rely heavily on evidence of the white powder in the teacup. She gave her husband this powder, she must have poisoned it. Then there was Anne Mead being sick and Sarah scolding her for trying one of the pills, plus the dead pig. The prosecution relies on hearsay and rumour, but they did also have some strong circumstantial evidence. Unlike with accidental arsenic poisonings, there seemed to be no source of accidental contamination. No one else had fallen ill apart from Anne. If there was arsenic poison in Sandal's medicines or that of the Gurry's pills, then surely someone else would have been ill at around that time. The trouble is, we don't know, and O'Malley had no time or means to go out and find out. Maybe a group of people taking Barker's pills did fall ill in Biggleswade around that time. We also don't know if the pills Mrs Gurry handed over to the coroner were ever tested. The defence, on the other hand, has little to put forward as an alternative narrative. O'Malley doesn't point the finger at anyone else though. I have read modern reports that say Sarah's defence did claim William killed himself. I think if this was the case, it may have been suggested merely as a statistically more likely than murder. 
I've also read that it was claimed that William poisoned baby Jonah and then either killed himself in regret or Sarah killed him in revenge. But if O'Malley said any of that, it's not in the newspaper reports I've read. Instead, O'Malley does point out that much of the evidence is rumour or hearsay and cannot be corroborated. Much of the evidence contradicts other evidence. William was sickly. William was in fine health. The Daisley boys saw everything. They weren't even in the room. There is no compelling evidence that Sarah was ever cruel to her husband or to anyone else for that matter. Most witnesses say that she was happy with William. He counters the reports that Sarah had sworn at her husband and spoken ill of him by pointing out that she only did this once she had been assaulted by her husband and O'Malley says that if there is one thing guaranteed to upset a woman, it is rough treatment by her husband. He points out that we all say rash things in anger that we don't mean. Lastly, he relies on the Victorian trope that a woman is not capable of such evil as murder. As we discovered in the last episode, the Victorians had a contradictory opinion on the nature of women. Yes, many believed women were naturally gentle and nurturing, incapable of great violence and harm. But many also believed that women were uniquely weak to temptation and sin, and so could be easily corrupted into becoming an unnatural woman. And that was really what O'Malley was fighting against. The prosecution saw Sarah as an unnatural wife, a woman who poisoned to get out of one marriage and into another. She could not control herself, just as they claimed she could not control her temper or her sexual appetites. Just look at the temptress. To simply counter that by saying, oh, nonsense, everyone knows women are incapable of murder, was just ridiculous, I think, even for the times. Most Victorians would have seen straight through it. The judge does, I feel, give a fair summing up. He reminds the jury that even though an inquest has found her guilty, this court has a higher burden of proof and they must have no reasonable doubt. He emphasises that this could have been an accident and they must be certain that it wasn't. At the start of the proceedings, we know that Sarah pleaded emphatically that she was not guilty. The jury retires for just a quarter of an hour, then return with their verdict, which is that they find Sarah Daisley guilty of the murder of her husband, William. The description of Judge Alderson's reaction to the verdict is heartbreaking. He apparently sat with his head in his hands, trembling for some minutes uncontrollably. When he eventually recovered his composure, he asked Sarah if she had any words before he sentenced her to death. And she replied, But I am not guilty, Your Honour. Alderson was then so overcome with shaking that the black coif that he had to wear to pronounce a death sentence fell from his head and had to be replaced. He pleaded with Sarah to make her confession to God. It turns out that Sir Edward Alderson was a very famous and well-renowned judge of the time, specialising in financial law, but he heard many criminal cases through the cycle of the Assizes. He was famous for convicting the Luddites and Chartists. He was a conservative against social uprising, but he also believed that rehabilitation was more important than punishment. He was well known for saying that capital punishment was not a deterrent to crime and wherever possible he would avoid pronouncing a death sentence, 
finding creative ways to work around it. I think he tried to make the jury understand that the level of doubt for this case was too great to convict for murder, but he was up against months of reporting in the newspapers as fact that Sarah was a multiple murderer. Maybe if Sarah had confessed, he would have found a way to demonstrate how contrite she was and have banished her to Australia instead. But she didn't confess. Not even at her execution. Sarah Daisley went to her death, proclaiming her innocence. Execution. It was rare for a prisoner sentenced to death to not confess to their crimes. Many gave in and spilled their sins to the chaplains or warders or at the jail. Few in 19th century Britain were executed refusing to admit their guilt. The belief in Christianity was strong and by confession in this life they hoped for forgiveness for the next. Or some just saw that they had nothing to lose now. Appealing a conviction was not an option and a pardon could be awarded in certain circumstances. If they admitted their guilt and there was some mitigating factor, then the Home Secretary could pardon a death sentence, but not the conviction. So Sarah went to her death on Saturday the 4th of August, 1843, at Bonham Corner, outside Bedford Jail, still saying that she was innocent. Over 10,000 people turned up to view the public hanging, and William Calcraft, the famous early Victorian executioner, was the hangman. By all accounts, the crowd was calm, quiet and respectful in the build-up to the act, but on her neck being broken by the noose, the crowd erupted, and Bedford then suffered the drunkenness and revelling such events brought. A report describes debauchery such as drinking, smoking, hustling and singing, all on display. There is a particular description of vagabond ballad mongers bawling out the last dying speech and confessions and singing the copy of verses made by the woman herself, all of which we need not add was entirely false and got up on the occasion by a printer in the town as harvest. We'll come back to the ballad mongers in a moment. All of this was on a scale more than double that of an average hanging would bring. Executions weren't that common in Bedfordshire. In the next 25 years, only three more took place in Bedford before public executions were outlawed, and it is suggested that the sheer numbers and boisterousness of the crowd at Sarah's execution was a contributing factor to moving such acts away from public view. I've read reports of how school children were kept in school all day that Saturday so that they would be protected from the crowd or from seeing the gruesome scene. Even in 1843, the appetite for such spectacles in certain corners of society was diminishing, but for others it was just a chance to let off steam and enjoy themselves. And for some, it was a way to make a quick quid, selling gruesome souvenirs like the one sold in 2020 at auction, or by producing ballads. Broadside Ballads Sarah's case crops up in relation to an historical curio which relates to executions, and that's broadside ballads. These were single sheets the size of a broadsheet newspaper that would print the details of the execution, the crimes committed, and would purport to include the last confession of the criminal 
and poetry or a ballad that they had composed. And even though Sarah made no confession, wrote no poetry that we're aware of, and physically these broadsheets had to be printed in advance of the execution, her alleged confession and poetry were sold by the thousands. Only a fragment of the ballad remains, and this is what it says. Farewell, my friends and children dear, eternally farewell. The pain I feel on your account no longer on earth can tell. A guilty wretch I am proclaimed by vilest passions led. To murder child and husband too, my soul is filled with dread. We can make out that arsenic is mentioned in the next stanza along with Potton and her parents' good standing. It's the story the newspapers peddled, put into verse, probably by the daughter of a Bedford printmaker's. One academic believes that this is a rare example of a broadside ballad written and printed by a woman. But of course, it's all fake news. It's the social media of their day. These ballads would be passed around, taken back to share with family and friends in the pub and at home. The song would be sung to a popular tune of the day and for a month or two, or maybe even longer, sung by those who memorised it, passed around the country, the terrible tale of the pot and poisoner growing in gruesomeness with each retelling. And to be honest, many of the newspapers towards the end were giving up on printing reliable information as well. For the newspaper men, it was as if the story had just been told so many times that no one checked their facts. So many newspapers, when it came to the trial in July and Sarah's execution the next month, claimed that she had a daughter who was poisoned. Why would they transform a son into a daughter? It's a mystery. Either laziness or maybe someone thought it made it just that bit more tragic. The names of key witnesses get mixed up and there's just general sloppiness. It seems to be because the case has already been done. There'd been three inquests and the newspapers are convinced of her guilt and are bored of reporting on it, yet they know it sells the papers. Was she guilty? As I said in the last episode, I don't think there is enough evidence to be certain that Sarah poisoned either Simeon Mead or her baby Jonah. In fact, I think there is little evidence to implicate her. Statistically, it is far more likely that baby Jonah got arsenic poison into his system by accident, and Simeon's illness, I think, sounds like a severe allergic reaction rather than poison. But should Sarah Daisley have been convicted of murdering William at trial? I do think there is enough reasonable doubt to not convict. There is so much doubt, but there is so much evidence missing as well. It's hard to know for sure. If this was an accident, where did the contamination come from? Why wasn't that found or discussed in court? Other accidental poisonings were investigated and the contamination was tracked down. Had too much time elapsed since William's death to track down an accidental source? The Gurry seemed to have been present for a lot of William's illness, but they clearly managed to convince a jury at both inquest and trial of their trustworthiness. They don't seem to have been serious alternative contenders for poisoners, whether by accident or on purpose. Then there are the numbers. The fact that Sarah lost two husbands and a baby in two years all suddenly 
Was this statistically significant for the time? Some contemporaries seem to think so, but a look at the death records show not dissimilar patterns to Simeon and Jonah's deaths. But when you add William too, it does begin to strain slightly, but it's not unheard of. If Sarah did murder all three, purely to get rid of them and then move on to the next man or phase in her life, why did she not confess? She was supposed to be overdramatic and loved attention. Confessing would have generated that attention she craved. And she did also appear to be quite religious. One criticism aimed at her was that she chose to go to church with her baby when he was poorly, rather than staying at home. Now, it might not have been a religious motivation that sent her to church that day, but she is also noted as reading the Bible and singing hymns when Simeon is sick. She sounds like someone who did believe in God, as most Victorians did, which meant it was in her interests to confess if she was guilty. But I honestly can't decide. I don't think the jury should have convicted her, but I also don't have an alternative explanation to put forward other than the powders and pills given to her from Mrs Gurry were accidentally contaminated with arsenic. And when you read some of the poisoning cases of the 19th century that include families accidentally poisoning themselves over and over again, never seemingly to learn from their mistakes, it does become apparent just how easy it was to poison yourself or another with arsenic back then. What's left behind? After any shocking case like this, the ripples are left for many years to come, decades even. So here's some information about what happened to the people mentioned in this story. Let's start with the victims' families first. The Meads were always a small family. I find no trace of Anne Mead after this trial. Maybe she married. When women change their names, it's much harder to track them through the genealogy sites. Simeon's parents also seem to vanish. Most probably they moved away, and the name being a common one, it's just hard to pick them out amongst the other Meads out there. The Daisleys were a bigger, more established family in the area, and they do stay. Elizabeth and William Senior's sons marry and have families of their own, still living and working on the farmland around Cocaine Hatley well into the 20th century. John is still alive in 1901, living with one of his six children. William Daisley's mother, Elizabeth, outlives her husband, and the last record we have of her, she is 66, living with the Hurton family at Cocaine Hatley. They are prosperous tenant farmers, Elizabeth is living with them as a nurse for their youngest, a little boy called William. It seems Elizabeth ended her days caring for a toddler with the same name as the son she so tragically lost. And what of Sarah's family? Her mother, Anne, and brother Philip lived together on Blackbird Street in Potton for the rest of their lives. Anne is working as a nurse and Philip as an agricultural labourer. Philip never marries. It appears that this branch of the Reynolds family comes to an end. Sarah's cousins, on the other hand, the daughters and sons of the tailor, Joseph Reynolds, spread out across Potton and the country. Sarah has a cousin also named Sarah, who is a dressmaker. She lives with her sisters in London throughout the 19th century, never marrying, and eventually ends her days with a widowed sister and servant girl in a leafy part of South London. 
one of the Gurries, Sarah and Ebenezer, they pop up in the records about 20 years after this case, and it's in the criminal records. By now much older, Ebenezer is working as a collector of tolls and taxes, and he is successfully prosecuted twice for being overzealous in the collection of what is owed. I was a little disappointed. I was hoping they might have been prosecuted for possibly cutting their products with things like plaster of Paris and so likely to make a mistake with arsenic. But it wasn't to be. Dr Sandal has a large family and his eldest son is also a William Henry Sandal who travels abroad and then trains as a doctor like his father and dedicates his life to treating the poor. He ends up working in Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire, a doctor for the workhouse and the hospital, treating the most deprived and impoverished. And when he dies aged 78 in the early 20th century, a lovely obituary is written about his life where they mention his large family back in Potton and how he followed in the footsteps of his father. And finally, you'll be wanting to know what happened to George and Mercy Waldock. I said they went to Australia after George's uncle or cousin made the move in the mid-1840s. Well, Mercy and George end up living in a place called Bolimba. It sits on a curve of the south bank of the Brisbane River, on the land of the Yagara people. I can't find census nor birth or death records for Australia that early in the 19th century, but I have found records of the land George was buying in this region. I also have records from the 1870s onwards of Mercy being issued and reissued a licence to run a pub. I believe Mercy passed away in around 1901, aged 75. But from these breadcrumbs, it seems that she was the successful landlady of a pub for many, many years. I wonder if the Waldocks were tempted to make this move to Australia to escape the scandal that had engulfed them. It was a scandal enough to have a baby out of wedlock, let alone to have the matter discussed in court and printed in the newspapers all over the country. It was another matter still for the information to be widely known because you'd been engaged to a woman convicted of murder. Maybe the scandal just never let them be. It's tempting to think that the Bigglesuede Waldocks took Mercy's child with them to Australia to escape the scandal and then the couple joined them later, meaning Mercy was reunited with her child. Maybe with some more genealogy research, we'll find out. Today. After episode one was released, I was contacted by someone with a former connection to the Checkers Inn at Wrestlingworth, the pub that hosted the three inquests into the deaths of Simeon and Jonah Mead and William Daisley. It is also likely that Sarah will have frequented that pub in less difficult times. It's a short walk from where she lived. This contact, who wants to remain anonymous, said that during their acquaintance with the old historic pub, which was some time ago, memorabilia from the trial and execution of Sarah Daisley were held in the checkers on display. There was even an old Victorian poison bottle and other bottles and jars which were said to have been left behind after the inquests. Now, we do know that the pill bottle seems to have disappeared, whether that was into the pockets of the coroner 
or left behind in the pub as a curio, we'll probably never know. But that wasn't all that was left behind in the pub, according to my source. They also said that the name of Sarah Daisley was carved in stone in the cellar. And although there are a number of ghosts reportedly associated with the checkers, there is one, a particularly malevolent poltergeist that is said to be the spirit of Sarah Daisley. My witness described the following activity. Doors would slam when there was no breeze nor a person to push them. Small objects would be thrown and glasses pushed off the bar. People even witnessed the beer drip trays lifting into the air and flipping over. The mixer bottles would just shatter all over the floor when no one was near them. But maybe the most frightening occurrence was the sound of heels walking across a stone floor, especially as the pub was carpeted at the time, and many said that the sound was the footsteps of Sarah Daisley, the pot and poisoner, taking her last walk towards the gallows. Next time on Weird in the Wade. Something is stalking the water meadows and lonely lanes of Biggleswade. Something is slinking through residential gardens in the dead of night. Something is spooking dogs and their owners in broad daylight when they're out walking. Although it was some distance off, it was very definitely a cat and it was very definitely not a domestic cat. I've spoken with two eyewitnesses and found two further reports of sightings in the last 20 years of non-native cats in Biggleswade. And I think I may have identified what at least one of the creatures is. We'll explore other Bedfordshire big cat sightings and untangle what's being witnessed. Are non-native cats really living in the UK countryside? And if so, how did they get here? We'll also hear from a very special guest and his unique perspective on big cat sightings as I speak with the wonderful Welsh storyteller Owen Staten. And although the big cat of Biggleswade is definitely a corporeal beast, I'm also going to explore something a little more uncanny and the phenomena of phantom felines. Join me next time to celebrate all things feline from big non-native cats to our beloved pets to those of a more ghostly variety. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Weird in the Wade, The Pot and Poisoner. I have a feeling it may not be the last time we'll hear of Sarah Daisley, I'd like to record a short bonus episode exploring her legacy in folklore and analyse the ghost stories we have about her. Why do people believe that her spirit is restless? Why not the poor souls of those who she is accused of murdering? 
role do ghost stories and folk tales of poisoners like this play in our society today? But that's for another time. As always, if you have any thoughts about this or other episodes, or you have a suggestion for a future episode, please do get in touch at the podcast email weirdinthewade at gmail.com or on social media. We're just about everywhere as Weird in the Wade, or there's a Linktree link in the show description. October's Halloween special episode is going to be about haunted pubs. So if you have a haunted pub story about Biggleswade, Bedfordshire, or the, its surrounding counties, please do get in touch. You can find the show transcript, notes and photographs on Weird in the Wade blog. And if you enjoyed this tale of a Victorian poisoner or any other of our tales, you can support the podcast, which is made by just me, with voluntary help from Tess Savagir for music, by liking, following and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people find the show. I know I say this every time, but it's true, I promise. You can also help the show by sharing and liking our posts on the socials. And I really do love hearing from you. The stories you share are brilliant. And there is a lovely spooky community of Weird in the Wade listeners growing and ready to welcome you. It's a great place to find recommendations for other interesting podcasts, blogs and social media accounts specialising in folklore, the high strange and general spookiness. I also have a Ko-fi page where if you are able to, you can buy the podcast a coffee. The link is in the show description. All proceeds are ploughed back into the podcast, so far being spent on a love mic, travel costs and actual cups of tea and coffee bought for those who have been kind enough to be interviewed for the show. See you next time for a perfect episode of cat-related strangeness. Weird in the Wade is researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Additional crowd, sound effects by Savagir and McCohen. Theme music and the Pot and Poisoner theme by Tess Savagir. Cat sound effects from the podcat, Kasumi. All additional sound effects and music from Epidemic Sound. <laughs>